Thank you for tuning in to the First Gen Hunter Podcast, the go-to resource for those seeking to establish a foundation in hunting knowledge, skills, and tactics. Welcome back, everyone, to the First Gen Hunter Podcast presented by Spartan Forge. Uh, we'll have more on Spartan Forge at the end of this episode, but uh, Weston, the guest tonight, loves to hunt sheds just like I do. So uh, you can be fair warned right now as you're tuning into this, yes, this conversation is going to devolve into a shed hunting conversation because it always does whenever I talk with a fellow shed head, but uh, you guys know I can't help myself. But this is still part of our elk series, so uh, we will definitely be talking about elk um, it just might be after they've dropped their antlers. So, uh, we'll, we'll get there though. We'll get there, but just starting out Weston from rising shed, man, what is your dream shed? Like if we all have it, I mean, we have this, this thing, this, this kind of rough picture in our head. Like if I could find that antler, my, my shed hunting career would probably be complete. So, uh, what is, what is that dream shed for you, man? Like species, you know, maybe it's in a specific, a special location to you, certain characteristics like mass, you know, nasty trash, or maybe it's just a really straight, typical antler. Like what is, what is your dream shed? Well, first I want to thank you for having me on, but dream Absolutely. shed has to be a 400 class caliber, caliber bull. Uh, I want to find the massiest long tying, uh, if it has a dropper on it, a triple brow, devil tine has all the characteristics. That's exactly what I'm looking for. That's what I want. That sounds amazing, man. Yeah, it sounds like you're. <laughs> sounds like you're my kind of your my kind of antler guy. I would rather. I mean, I would rather have a. Let's see here. So I know just enough about elk to be dangerous here, but I know a 400 inch bull is just. I mean, that's like the, that's like a 200 inch buck. Oh, that's a monarch. That's stupid. Yeah. 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 (laughs) And, uh, so I would rather, I would rather find a 360 inch shed that, or, you know, match that, that is like very non-typical has all kinds of funky trash going on. Great mass than like a really clean 400. Do you feel the same way there? Like, are you just a sucker for the, the trash, the stickers and kickers and all that? I'm all about the character, bro. I I will take character all day. There was actually a, we were talking about this the other day. There's a meme going around with like a 160 class four point and then a spike that was like 24 inches tall. (laughs) And there were two mule deer and it says, which one would you take? And everybody's like, no brainer, no brainer. I'm pretty sure I'm the only person that would shoot a 24 inch spike because you're never going to see that again. <laughs> That's You'll right. See a handful of 160 bucks, but a 24 inch spike. Are you kidding me? Oh, I'm shooting that all day. <laughs> yeah, man, that is for sure. I have a funny story about that, actually, kind of. Um, I was hunting down in Missouri. Oh, must be like getting close to five years ago now, four or five years ago. And uh, they had an antler point restriction, and um, the hunt was not going well. Like, like there were deer on the property, but as a group, we just weren't hunting it very well. 
And uh, so the deer movement was all like messed up and um, I just really wasn't getting any opportunities. And then I finally get, I finally get my opportunity. And um, when I get my opportunity, this buck walks by who does not fall within the antler point restriction qualifier. It was, you, it had to have either four points on one side or it had to have, it had to be a spike that was three inches or, or less. And I'm not kidding you, man. I've never seen a spike like this at any point in my life. This spike walks by who looks like an antelope. You know, he's got like, like <laughs> eight, nine inch spikes coming out of his head and I can't shoot him because it was like my only, uh, only opportunity. We were only down there for like two days and I had to pass on him. But, but yeah, anyways, I, that I would definitely go for the uh, funkiest antler. Uh, that you can find there's just something about it they don't you know they don't make those so no i i love the unique stuff so i don't blame you (laughs) yep yep well this is going to be a fun conversation as i said weston is from rise and shed and uh, i was telling weston i actually found him during covid Uh, we're all stuck in our houses and and uh uh looking for something to do and and um actually you know it might have been right before then because I think it was when before shed season had actually started. So I was watching a ton of uh, shed hunting videos on YouTube and I came across his channel through uh, doing that. And uh, you know, it's been fun following him ever since and seeing his, his channel grow and his brand grow. And um, he gets to hang out with some really cool people uh, looking for antlers, but also do a lot of hunting too. And, um, you know, that's kind of what brings us together tonight. So, uh, you know, just kind of a little hunting profile, Weston, have you been hunting your whole life? Like since you were a kid or, uh, was that something you came into as an adult? This is actually something I've done my entire life. So I kind of had the best of both worlds. So I grew up with my stepfather and my mom. And so my real father, he was more the, the bird hunter. So I got to do a lot of pheasant hunting when I was growing up with him and fishing and stuff. And my stepdad was more the big game hunting. So I kind of got the best of both worlds. And so, yes, ever since I've been able to legally hunt an animal, I've been getting after it. Yeah, that is, that is so cool. And that's the kind of kid that I like, uh, was jealous of when I was in school, man. I was, you know, I, I did everything else outside, but I couldn't hunt yet. And, uh, you know, so I couldn't get into it at, until I was an adult, but no, I, I think those like that, that person that you were as a kid, you know, growing up in the hunting world, like that kind of kid I hung around with a lot. And, uh, I think is what kept me interested even until I became an adult, you know, and I could, uh, I could actually go hunting on my own, just seeing like, uh, you know, their family, you know, a friend of mine would be like, Oh yeah, my family's going to go, uh, to our deer camp this, this weekend. And, you know, we're going to be in this part of the state and we get to do this, this, and this. And just like kept me super interested, you know, it's like, man, that sounds like so much fun. And I started to like get a little taste of the culture that I think is what really keeps people around for the long term. You know, you kind of start to see that there's a true lifestyle that goes with hunting. It's not just, yeah, we go out there, we shoot it and that's it. You know, it's, it's so much more than that. And so, you know, I think it's, I think it's cool that, there's people like you that have lived and breathed it ever since you can remember. So, Oh yeah. 
saying I thought it was crazy when I talked to somebody that didn't hunt. I thought everybody hunted. Yeah. I thought that was, you know, a normal thing. But then kind of, you know, getting older, talking with other people, and they're like, no, I've never hunted a day in my life. I've never even fished. It's like, wait, <laughs> yeah. what? It's like, <laughs> what do you do with your time? Yeah, like, that's right. Seriously. Yeah. <laughs> I, I often think that a lot. I think, what was I doing with my time before I hunt? Now, I did fish quite a bit. And, uh, you know, I'd go out and hike and we would do some backpacking trips and, uh, kayaking trips and stuff. But, but yeah, like without shed hunting and hunting, which is what occupies most of my free time now in some way, shape or form. Um, what was I doing? Was I just watching TV? Was I, you know, what, <laughs> what, what, what was I doing? You know, just being and, a kid, I You're know being a kid. that's right. And and I'm so glad to to have found it and, you know, get, get a, be a part of that community now. It's so important to me. And, and I see why, uh, you know, people like you didn't just get, you know, almost like sports where you get a taste of it as a kid. You're like, yeah, you know, baseball's fun until I'm, you know, 15 and then I never play ever again. Hunting is something that if you, if you do it the right way and have a good experience growing up, you're going to stick with it your whole life. And, Oh yeah. And I think that, I think that's really cool and something that's kind of rare when you consider different things that people like doing. So yeah, really awesome. And, uh, so if you're, you said your stepdad was a, uh, well, let me, let's talk about your, uh, your, your, um, biological dad here for a second. So are, do you still have like a soft spot in your heart for, you know, bird dogs and pheasant hunting and stuff like that? Or. Oh yeah. Do, yeah. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I do. That's awesome. Do, I you, just, do you get out ever? Uh, honestly, no. So my real father actually, uh, committed suicide when I was 17. Oh, and man, that's I'm actually why, uh, dude, it's made me a better, you know, and life happens. But with every sale at my website, I actually donate a dollar to the American foundation for suicide prevention. Oh, that's uh, awesome. and I do it, you know, out of respect for him and stuff and other people that are, going through depression or anxiety or mm. whatever, you know, was going on in their life at that moment. But yeah, so that's definitely, uh, it's something that I guess wouldn't be the same without him, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so I just, I have never actually picked up a shotgun ever since, uh, that day, basically, uh, just, I kind of, you know, lost the drug to, I guess, go out at first and, don't get me wrong. I would still go do it if I got invited and stuff, but it just, it wouldn't be the same. And yeah. so, yeah, I definitely still have a soft spot for, you know, upland game. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I, I, you know, I shouldn't say I, I can understand or I may, yeah, I can understand. I can't relate to it, you know, but I can definitely understand why somebody, you know, would, would, uh, view it that way. And I think that that's, that's a, uh, it is honoring your dad, you know, by, by like still viewing that as a special thing that you guys shared and that's what made it special to you in the first place. So yeah, definitely, definitely can understand where you're coming from there. And, but your stepdad, he, uh, got you into big game hunting. It sounds like, did he get you yep. running with elk like right away or did he kind of easy in with like mule deer or antelope or something like that? Oh no, dude, we went head first elk deer, whatever that's that, awesome. that was our thing oh yeah yeah what i mean that like growing up we would just get uh rifle tags and so we'd just do the general spike elk hunt and the general 
buck uh, mule deer tag. And that was literally our thing all growing up. And I was actually not happy when I finally could like put in for myself and I knew what I was doing and stuff. And I told him, I was like, Hey, do you know we can kill a big bull at any time with an over the counter tag? And he's like, yeah, <laughs> you can just get an any bull tag. I'm like, wait, <laughs> and he's like no i just have no desire to do that he's like i just love hunting at our cabin and our cabin is a premium unit so you okay. have to draw that and it takes like 30 years to draw it with a rifle <laughs> tag and stuff and so you know we just grew up always elk hunting there with i mean just spike elk hunting there and that was just our thing and I was actually not happy when I found out that I could have been hunting big bulls this entire time. <laughs> yeah, I bet, man. Yeah, that's to to see that you had those opportunities and you were you weren't getting them, man. That, but still, that's really cool. You know, getting in there with uh, it shows you're getting into it for the right reasons. You know, you're getting in oh, there. Absolutely. And it's, it's all about the hunt and the meat and the camaraderie. I'm sure and everything else. But honestly, I did draw that premium tag when i was 18 years old with zero points it was my very first time putting in for elk points and i actually drew it and it was uh it was an awesome hunt like we got some of the family friends out there my grandma grandpa were out there everybody was out there and uh so it was kind of funny story early in the hunt he well even before the hunt started he would always tell me like i want to be there when you shoot you know, that was his yeah. thing. I want to be there when you take your animal. So uh, I ended up missing a bull very opening day, very first thing. And I mean, we saw plenty of elk, but he also was like, why did you shoot at that first bull? Da, da, da. He's like, there's bigger bulls out here, but I was just excited and I want to get one. And yeah. so we go through the whole, the whole hunt and it's the second to last day of the hunt. And it is just pouring rain. And, uh, him and I split up around this bench. I went to the right. He went to the left and I got up on top and I looked down and there's like a 380 class bull seven point on both sides with 20 cows. And he's just chilling in this open meadow. I could have killed him a hundred times over. He's only like 150 yards away. (sighs) And I, but in the back of my head was like, Oh, dad wants to be here to see this, you know, (laughs) let's wait for him. And so I wait uh, for him, but on his way down to me, he was super loud and scares the elk out. Uh, and so he gets to me and I'm like, dude, I had a bull right here. And he's like, why didn't you shoot it? And I was like, you told me you wanted to be here. And so anyway, we go after these elk and uh, like I said, it's pouring rain and we're in these thick timber pines and I have a window about 10 feet wide, if that. And all of a sudden, the elk are piling through that window. And I had only seen one bull there the entire time. So I'm seeing cow, cow, cow. And he's like, as soon as you see antlers, pull the trigger, you know. Yeah. I see antlers, I pull the trigger. And, like, I could tell I hit something. Like, I, yeah. I hit it. I just didn't know how big it was. And so we go out, and all of a sudden, we look down to the left, and, like, maybe 50 yards away from where I'd shot, we see this elk. But it's a rag, like a small five point. And then all of a sudden we see the big bull and his 20 cows going up the other side. And I was like, what just happened? So we hurried and went down and inspected it. I shot a five point rag 
instead of the 380 big goal. <laughs> and yeah. So, I mean, don't get me wrong. It was just me and my old man just up in our uh, cabin area where we hunt every year of our life. And so don't get me wrong. Like it was an awesome experience just for that aspect. But I did kill a rag five over a 380 yeah. seven point. So yeah, there's yeah. an elk story for you. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a great story, man. And I'm sure you guys have, talked about that and you know every year since then every elk season you're probably like, hey dad remember the time when uh you told me i couldn't shoot without you and i <laughs> yeah it's been brought up many a times <laughs> <laughs> and i missed out on boone and crockett because of you dad <laughs> yeah pretty much <laughs> oh man that is a great story though and a great memory and you know sometimes i think the <laughs> The, the uh unfortunate events stick with us better than you know when everything works out how you hope it would but no it's a and, that's, that's a fantastic story well, i appreciate it <laughs> but so been hunting ever since you're a kid i love how uh you know both of your both of your fathers um really made it a part of raising you to to include you in on that and and pass that down to you. And, um, I'm sure, you know, uh, your dads would just be, well, your dads are thrilled with seeing what you're doing now. Of course, your, your biological father, you know, uh, he would be so proud. I'm sure if he could, if he could see what, what that's turned into for you, you know, and He'd like um, to think so. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, I mean, shoot, we're both dads. Think if, think if our kids were taking it, this serious you know when they're when they're our age you know we'd be we like that's a that's a dream for us that they, <laughs> that they oh, want to be into it you know so yeah that's that's really awesome you know as we as we transition now into like the you know it is part of our elk series so we love telling the stories and everything but we want to offer some tactics and stuff i imagine like since those earliest days you probably were you know, picking up some like baseline information on how to hunt elk, like, you know, the kind of habitat you're going to be in the, the time of year that you associate different types of habitat with where, you know, where elk are going to be for that time of year. Um, but I'm sure you have honed that even more, um, as, as, uh, you know, now as an adult and somebody who's doing it all on your own and, and everything else. But let's just kind of walk through that, like that idea of where to find elk. And, um, we're going to, we're definitely going to talk about sheds here, but we talked about this a little bit before we started recording. I think shed hunters have almost an advantage for knowing, you know, like whatever, whatever game that they're, that they're, looking for sheds for and even i mean even other species you know like you come across sign for other other things while you're out shed hunting but you know where where can people like if they're if they're going out west for their first time where can they expect to find elk and i'm sure it changes you know from throughout throughout elk season from september to november so let's just start with september you know if you're in the mountains where where are you going looking for elk in September? Well, like you said, it definitely depends on the region. Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm getting up in the deepest, darkest canyon I can find. 
because those older bulls love seclusion. They want to be by themselves. They act differently than these younger, I guess you would call them satellite bulls and mm. stuff. Like as they get older, like they're more grumpy. They want to be away from everybody. And I, that, and I've even heard that the older mature bulls don't even really like to be a part of the rut fest. They're almost like mm. a satellite bull and they just come in, grab whatever cows they want, do their business and then leave them and just kind of travel around doing that. And like, I'm sure most people know elk have like a rotation. It's like a week rotation. Sometimes it's even longer, but they're basically staying at that same elevation during that time frame, and they're just doing one big rotation, like a big circle or something like that. So, and so that's that weak rotation you talked about. Yep. Can you kind of explain that, like break that down a little bit? You know, like what what's going on with the rotation? So honestly, like I'm probably not the most knowledgeable about this, but what I've learned over the years is, so elk need water everything needs Mm -hmm. water to survive and elk will drink a ton of water in that one sitting they'll put down gallons of water in that one sitting of them just finding a water hole and so they'll just bump around and they just check it's almost like a rub line for whitetails i would say you know how Mm -hmm. whitetails kind of have their rotation yep exact same type of thing they just go around checking their spots going to their water checking in on ladies and then transitioning from their feeding areas to their bedding areas. Hmm. And a lot of that I have found on just deep, dark, nasty canyons that nobody really wants to hike in, Uh but that's where the animals are is because they're so secluded that way. Sure. Yeah. That's really interesting. I've never, I've never heard that before, but it makes a lot of sense. So you're getting in there and that is similar to whitetail hunting in a couple different ways. You know, the bigger bucks, they always say, you know, if you really want to see big bucks on their feet, you're going to get in there like around Thanksgiving time frame instead of mid November, because, uh, the bucks know what's happening. They've, they've kind of established their dominance already in their area. And so they're, they they do not even have to like leave their, their home area as much, you know, they're going to breed all the does that are in their, their local area. But then they understand that the rut's still going on later into november whereas the younger bucks don't have that experience yet and so you'll see more big bucks up moving around later on in the rut than but also you know just the seclusion element too the bigger bucks are going to be where they're less bothered and now what about calling you know you don't have to be the expert here on calling but do do those really old mature bucks do they respond much to calls Or is that, again, kind of more of those younger, or not bucks, bulls, uh, the younger satellite bulls that are doing most of the calling back and forth? I would say it's the younger bulls doing most Mm. of the calling and going back and forth. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm sure in the certain situation, you're going to have an old, just monarch herd bull going off and stuff and trying Mm -hmm. to round up stuff. But I think for the most part, it is those younger bulls that are making all the noise. Uh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's that again. That's that's similar to uh, a whitetail rut too. You know, if you're rattling antlers, sure it can bring in a big buck, especially if you like already have eyes on him and he's walking away and you want to try and get him into archery range or something. But um, you know, more likely if you're just blind rattling or blind calling on a grunt tube or something, 
it's going to be a younger deer that's going to come in. So that's really interesting to see those parallels there though. Okay. Absolutely. So we're out of the rut. We're getting into October. And this is, I recently learned this when it gets to October for you guys, weather starts to change quite a bit. Whereas in Iowa, it's a very gradual, you know, ease into fall. But for you guys, you could have snow in October, right? Up in the mountains. Oh, dude, in Utah, you could literally have all four seasons in the same day. That's crazy. Like, it, it, <laughs> it, it is crazy out here. So, like, yeah, there's been times I've been on the elk hunts where we're literally in basically short sleeve and short weather, you know. Hmm. And then the very next day, you're in a foot of snow. Man. It actually happened on my dad's elk hunt uh, two years ago. That's the exact thing that happened. Opening wow. day, it was so hot. And then the next day we woke up to like a foot of snow. That's it was insane. crazy, man. Yeah, that and is, that was in October. <laughs> that that is hard to prepare for. I mean, especially if you're you know you're packing back in there. You're not you know camping out of your truck. If you're like setting up a base camp or something, or or a spike camp, even if you're at like a certain elevation you want to stay at, you gotta be you gotta have a lot of gear, right? Oh, dude, you have to be a Boy Scout out here, prepared for anything and everything. Man, so so do you do those uh, hot tents ever? Like um, the like the little you know ultralights, uh, not like a not like a gas stove, but like a little uh, log stove, you know, for heating up a with like a bit of a pipe stove pipe and everything to heat up a tent. Or do you guys, you know, if it's gonna snow? And, uh, you're going to, you know, be in the back country. You're, you're, you're just going to have to put on your zero degree sleeping bag, put your puffy layers on and try and <laughs> do your best to stay warm. I mean, how, how do you handle that? Honestly, it depends on who I'm hunting with. <laughs> I have some <laughs> friends that are more hardcore than others, but if I'm going with my buddy, Jared, I know that we're going hardcore, uh, he does actually have one of those seek outside tents that has yes, the wood burning stove in it. Yep, 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 that's the one. Yep, so he has one of those. Uh, we have done that before, but then we have also done uh, where we weren't prepared, only had the rain fly on the tent, and it Ooh. was an absolute blizzard in Montana. Woke up to like frozen boots, sleeping bag, all oh, of our equipment man. was frozen. It was negative 13 degrees. We almost died. Like, that was the <sighs> yeah, crazy. Yeah, that's dangerous. Crazy hunt. Oh, dude, so dangerous. Did it just turn into, I like. I legit thought we were going to die. I don't. I, yeah, I could definitely see. I mean, so did it just turn into, like, a survival mission at that point? Like, hey, we got to get back down to the vehicle. Or did dude, you guys keep Dude, 110%. Hunt? Yeah. Just... No, so that that's what was crazy is, uh. It had snowed that day, and we're like, we're going to have to go into town and get a hotel or something like that. But we were deciding that for later that night. Well, guess what? We have two sets of tracks going through the snow. One goes on top of the ridge. One goes down through this draw. I chose to go on top of the ridge. Jared takes the draw. He goes five miles back in there, actually shoots an elk, so we're apart. I have no idea where he's at. We had no communication. It was so cold that our phones died. It wouldn't oh. even turn back on. So I even had a chance at going after a bull, but then I see this storm to my north and I'm like, the bull can wait. And yeah. so I actually started heading back to camp. 
I hear him shoot. I head back towards the truck and all of a sudden that storm hit. I could not see five feet in front of me. And like when I say it was a whiteout, it was a whiteout. Like I could not see in front of me. Uh, like I said, my phone turned off. So I was literally just trying to stay on the trail that I knew. And then by the time I got down, cause we had parked in a big sagebrush bowl. But by the time I got down to where that bowl was, I had no idea where the truck was. I hmm. couldn't tell you, I couldn't tell you Northeast, Southwest. I couldn't tell you anything. And I spent two hours just combing through the bottom of this bowl, trying to find the truck. And honestly, like it was one of those times where I, I literally said a prayer out loud and I was just like, please just let me find this truck. Like, mm -hmm. please, and please let Jared be okay and let him find his way back. And I did get scared and I actually ended up finding the truck probably shoot. I, like I said, I was searching for like two plus hours said the prayer and then found the truck maybe 10 minutes later. Wow. And then I started doing laps around the truck. And I can tell you Jared's truck was nine yards long and four yards across because I did it that many times. And it had snowed so much that I had a track going around his truck and it's getting 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock. And I'm looking at my, uh, my little GPS thing or whatever. And, all of a sudden, I'm thinking, if it hits midnight, I have to break his windows. Like, I'm getting in this truck because he had the keys. Yeah. And yeah. so and so I'm like, I have to break the windows to get in here. So it's it, like 1130 at night. And I'm like, all right, Jared, I hope you're alive. I hope you have a fire, something. And I just see the snow had just barely stopped. And I just see a little glimmer of light up on the ridge that I came down from. <laughs> and I just yelled the loudest I have ever yelled in my life. And I just yelled, Jared. And he still couldn't really see or hear me at that time. And so I just kind of waited for that flashlight to keep getting further down the hill. And honestly, bro, it was kind of like Baywatch slow motion moment when we found each other. I just gave him a big hug. And honestly, we kind of <laughs> both got emotional. He was I like, bet. dude, I thought you were dead. And I was like, I thought you were dead. Like, <laughs> dude. And like, it's almost midnight and he wasn't back yet. But what had happened, he's, he actually shot a bull and caped it out and got everything all done up that he could. And he only actually cut off one of the sides, like the hindquarter, shoulder, and head, and everything. Yeah. And then uh, he only packed out like the back straps and one of the hindquarters and came out and finally met up with me. So, long story short, like, yeah, we thought we were going to die in Montana. Oh, man. Dude, that so is a serious close call. Yeah. yeah, you just have to be prepared for anything. You just never know. Yeah. Oh man, what a praise God that you guys, you know, made it back and, and he heard your prayer. <laughs> That's for yep. sure. You exactly. Know, and, and man, what a scary cir circumstance that was. Wow. So, uh, did you, uh, did you tell your wife that story when you got back or did you keep that one to yourself? <laughs> oh, it was definitely talked about and, uh, she was not happy. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I bet. I bet, man. That is, that is crazy. You know, we were, I'm trying to think who it was recently. We were talking about when you have those close call situations at first, you like almost, 
like you feel ashamed. You know what I mean? Like, man, I can't believe I let my guard down or I was so unprepared or I, you know, wasn't paying attention. But when you survive those close call moments, it teaches you a lesson you do not forget for the rest of your life. You know what I mean? And, oh, yeah. And at the same time, you just feel like so sorry for the people who didn't like get another chance. You know what I mean? Like, Oh yeah. That, that they made their mistake and that was it, you know? And so it's like, it makes you very thankful and uh, makes you reflect a little bit and it certainly makes you learn going forward. So yeah, I'm glad you made it out of there, man. You and your buddy, Jared, that's, that is some sketchy stuff there, but man, that's, that's a story to tell for sure. So. Oh yeah. Well, it's actually on my YouTube channel and I did just that the next day, the next morning. I literally tell that aspect of things of just like, I am so grateful for warmth. I'm so grateful to have Jared alive. So mm -hmm. dude, trust me, it definitely changes your perspective and it makes you definitely prepare a lot better for the future hunts and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, man. I, well, I'm going to definitely check that out. What's the title of the video? Just so our listeners um, can see it. I know on the thumb, now it says frozen but it it's just montana book hunting something like that okay it so, was back in 2018 when we did that okay so so uh some of your earliest stuff then so yeah yep. uh, i will uh track that down and i will put the link for that video once i find it in the show notes of this episode here so everyone else can uh tune in and see that and just kind of put put your eyes on the situation that weston and jared were dealing with there but Man, what a what a what a great story though, too. You know, the close calls make for good stories, that's for sure. So that um, they do. You know, what as you get into November, you know, so now you're talking like the late rifle seasons or second and third rifle seasons in most western states, I imagine. What's you know, what's going on with with uh the elk at that point? Are they just in survival mode? Or are they just finding you know, finding any kind of food that's available. Are they going, you know, down low, like in the, in the valleys, like where, where are the elk? And I guess you could maybe lump October in there too. Like where, where are you finding an elk in October and November? So they're definitely starting their migration. Uh, I would say that you're finding them a little bit lower in elevation at that point in time. And they are actually starting to hang out with other bulls again. Like okay. they became friends all over again and they're finally, you know, making up for all the fighting and all that stuff <laughs> and they'll start lumping together. And, uh, yeah, I, I would say they're typically heading off to their winter range by November. Okay. That's, uh, that's, that's good to know. So, um, what, like what elevations are we, you know, talking about here for September? They're up high. Is that like around, uh, I imagine like it just it depends on where you're at in the mountain range, but exactly, yeah, but, it just depends on region. But I would say my typical elevation I would find elk is in between 7,500 and 9,500 feet of elevation. Okay, yep, that's 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 good to have that information. And uh, and then when it comes to like late season, is it more? I imagine it's down to that 7,500 range. I mean, don't get me wrong. If they don't have anything pushing them out per se, 
like a lot of pressure or snow or anything, mm-hmm. they'll still stick around up there because elk follow a snow line. Especially okay. like talking about shed season, elk will follow that snow line. Okay. So you really need to pay attention to that then during hunting season. Uh, where's that snow line? Because then come shed season, that's where you're going to find them. As long as there's not a crap ton of snow that pushes them down even further. But yes, uh, pretty much. Okay. that's I See, I didn't know that. And I've always wondered, you know, because I, I watch guys like you and some of the others on YouTube that are finding so many elk sheds. I'm like, man, how do they, how do they know where to go? But that makes... That makes sense. So it's almost like, honestly, it's almost like hunting uh, black bears, right? Where you're following that snow line. I've honestly never hunted bears, so I couldn't even tell you, bro. <laughs> well, I, I, I hunted. I hunted them once in uh, in uh, Northwest Montana. That was kind of the name of the game. There it was where's where is it green and where is it snowy? Find that where that green meets the meets the white. That's where you're gonna find bears, and that it was it was pretty well true. It kind of guided you to the right elevation that way. But so yeah, let's talk shed season now. So if you're um if you're looking for sheds uh it's still an elevation game like how how many feet of elevation generally will sheds be spread across is it like you know two thousand feet of elevation you'll find them or is it like really narrowed down to like now it's like a thousand feet well let's put it this way where i'm from it's about a 3500 foot elevation gain like between where you're gonna find sheds oh really so you can yeah, find the, you can find some pretty low, and then you got to go way up there for some of them. Exactly, yes, sir. Wow, so that's that is quite a spread there. That's that's a that's a lot of hiking. Oh yeah, but I would say typically elk are up higher in elevation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you do get those bulls that will go down to the lower elevation zones and stuff but for the most part i would say your sweet spot for elk sheds is in between 75 and 8500 feet of elevation okay 75 and 85 now are you looking for meadows up at that elevation is that like what everyone's you know keying in on like they're looking at their they're looking at their uh e-scouting their map you know their their uh, Spartan Forge or or whatever they're mapping and they're looking at that and they are like, oh, that looks juicy there. That's a nice big clearing. Or is it more uh, random than that? Um, again, it depends on region, but up here they love oak brush. If you get around any oak brush patches mm. or mahogany or anything like that, that's where you're going to be looking. And then if you have any mahogany patches or oak brush that and then all of a sudden there's like a sagebrush meadow type thing and it's encased with all that stuff around it mm-hmm. you're gonna find sheds there a hundred percent or okay. acorns or something like that you're gonna find sheds around that area so basically those areas are providing some kind of late season um uh food source right yep now do elk really so like when you're finding whitetail sheds here in the Midwest, food is definitely important, but uh, equally important is thermal cover. Are elk really concerned about that? You know, during uh, the yes. Winter? Okay. I, I would say so. I, I think they're still just 
they want to be secluded. I think elk just love the seclusion and mm-hmm. you're still going to find them in that dark timber. Okay. hundred yeah. percent. And, yeah. but I'm honestly looking just because we do have a lot of snow out here. Or some years we get more than others, but, uh, you're looking for windswept ridges, like where, you know, they have a South slope, Southeast facing slope. That's where the snow is going to burst or you have a windswept mm. ridge, they're going to be right there because whatever is available for them at that point in time with the snow, that's where they're going to be. Sure. Yeah. Now, do you um, look at, so uh, a guy who co-hosts this episode or this podcast with me a lot is, uh, his name is Alex Gruen. He He's a hunt planner. He does a lot of hunting out West all over the place. And one of the things he does when he's putting together a hunt plan is he looks at like historic satellite um, maps of, of an area throughout the different seasons. Do you guys study stuff like that? Like look at, you know, historic snow, you know, present, you know, snow depths and stuff like that to kind of figure out, okay, that this is an area that's probably getting windswept year after year uh, over here, obviously you can, you know, just use a compass to plan out like Southern exposures and stuff like that. But, um, do you, do you do anything like that for, for scouting? Uh, not necessarily at with snow, but burn areas, a hundred percent. I will look at older burn areas, like two, three year oh, old really? burn areas. Oh yeah. Especially when that vegetation's coming back in there, it's mm-hmm. just super dense and green. And I mean, that attracts all animals, not just elk. That's sure. all animals. So are those the kind of areas where, and again, I'm sure it's an elevation game, but do you kind of start to find like a, a blend of elk and mule deer antlers uh, together in areas like that? If it's like at, at the right elevation? Oh, a hundred percent. Yes. That's interesting. That's uh, man, you're getting me excited. I want to go out there and look for sheds, man. That's, <laughs> that sounds so cool. But yeah, that makes sense. So they're they're targeting that that uh, new regrowth in those burns and getting that little green, super nutrient dense uh, food source. That's that makes a lot of sense. Um, so I, I should have asked this earlier. Are elk dropping their antlers? You know, like in the, so whitetails, you'd have like a bell curve with, you know, the, the vast majority of whitetail sheds hitting the ground between like February 15th and, uh, I would say, um, you know, late March, early April. And is that the same for elk or are elk, you know, more like moose where they're shedding a lot in December, January timeframe? No, nah, so elk will typically really start dropping the first week of March. And okay. I mean, I've, I've seen elk pack until the second weekend of May. Whoa. But typically, I would say March, April, most of the elk are going to be dropped. Okay. Yeah, that's very similar to whitetail time frame then. But there again, you guys could still have a ton of snow in March and April. And you even have shed hunting seasons, right? Yep. Yep. But that was, was that new this year in Utah, the, the shed hunting season? So we had a closure in 2017 (laughs) and then we just had a closure this year again, just because the snow levels, it decimated Mm -hmm. some of our deer populations in Northern Utah. Man. Yeah. I, yeah, I remember that now. And I think 
like Colorado, they already had closures until May, right? Yep. And maybe did did Montana and Wyoming? Oh, Wyoming, that's who it was. Yep. So so that's part of it too, is you can't get out there until until a certain time, and I'm sure there's a few people out there who cheat the system and drive all oh, you yeah. guys crazy that are trying to do it the right way. Oh but, yeah. But you know, that's part of it. And that happens, you know, with, with poaching too, you know, people get out there and, and they'll do whatever, but yeah, you'll have a couple bag, bad eggs. And I feel every department, like whether yep. they're poaching sheds or animals or I, I guess anything in reality, like you're always going to have a couple bad eggs. Yep. Yep. No, that makes sense for sure. Well, hey, let's uh, let's um, maybe give some general advice here to uh, people looking at getting into elk hunting. So what would you say for people getting into elk hunting, what is the hardest, like most challenging part of, of elk hunting? Sometimes just finding the elk themselves can mm. be the biggest challenge. Um, I would say like your best bet is scouting is the best thing you can obviously do. Like if Mm. you can get out there in the early season and that's, what's awesome about Utah is our actual elk season starts in August. And so you can get them to pattern a little bit in August, but once they strip, I mean, strip that velvet, Mm -hmm. dude, it all bets are off. They just go nomadic and they go wherever they want to go. But scouting is obviously going to be your best bet, not just finding the animals, but finding your food sources, finding your bedding areas, your transition areas, your wallows, your water, everything. Like you're not just scouting for the animal. You're like scouting for even uh, if you're seeing certain pressure from other people, even scouting when you're out and about or, you know, if there's a forest fire or just, you know, you're doing a whole bunch of different things when you're out scouting, not just actually looking for the animals itself Mm -hmm. and so i would say scouting is your number one thing uh number two is just you have to be persistent you have to just get out there every single day even though some of those hikes that you're gonna make it's gonna suck a lot and you may not even see an animal Mm -hmm. but during their rotation they could come into that area at any time you just don't know Hmm. you really don't know so just because there weren't elk there one, two, or three days, they could be in there day four, five, six, you know, something like that. So you just, you got to keep a level head, got to stay positive and just keep after it more than anything. Yeah, and honestly, I, I don't call a lot, um, especially in these open bull units here in Utah. Mm-hmm. You have everybody and their dog calling. So <laughs> I like to just stay quiet and just listen. And just play, just basically spot and stock or just still hunt. I love to still hunt through dark timber. And I'll just take my time, be as quiet as possible, and just keep my head on a swivel. And hopefully I just catch movement or something like that. And you just, you got to stay level-headed though. You can't just get down just because you don't see elk one, two, or three days. Like you got to stay there the whole time and just stay on it, stay on the grind. Yeah, I love that. I think I think still hunting is probably, uh, you know, a, there's all sorts of different ways our ancestors hunted, of course. But like when you think of like what was the you know what was the mountain man doing back in the 1830s, you know, or what was 
what was Daniel Boone doing back when there were still elk, you know, in pretty much every state east of the of the Mississippi River, you know, what they were probably still hunting, you know. So I think that's really cool that oh, yeah. that people are doing it. and it's still effective, you know, like you said, you're covering ground and and um, you know, if you're you're trying to go to the elk instead of just trying to locate them all the time. So uh, with, with calling, I mean, so, um, you know, when you, when you consider a new elk hunter, what's something that you feel that people before they hunt elk, they just can't understand about elk until after they've hunted them. If that question makes sense, like what, what's the big epiphany that people have after they've hunted elk? Um, that you need to be in better shape than you thought and (laughs) the animal is bigger than you would ever imagine. And if you're lucky enough to tag out on an elk, you're going to need some buddies because it'll take (laughs) you two days to get that thing out by yourself. A hundred percent. Yeah. I don't care who you are. If you're a muscle man, what I don't care who you are. No, you want help packing out an elk. That's great. That's great to know. Yeah, I just uh, interviewed um, Tony Treach last night, and he talked about – so he's a fellow Midwest guy. He's from Michigan, and he talked about his first time he went elk hunting, which was like over a decade ago. And uh, it was basically what you just said right there. He he shot the thing, and he had no plans to, like, call a pack-out service. But once he got up to that animal and saw it on the ground, he was calling him right away. He's like, yeah, oh, yeah. man, I, I'm I'm gonna need I'm gonna need help." <laughs> so yep. yeah, that's that's good to know. And the and the getting in shape, you know, the the phrase. Well, I think there's even you know it's the guy who's got got the whole you know channel that he has elk shape. You know, that's that's a uh, it's the more I hear about it, that's. That's a good way to describe it. You got to be in a very specific kind of physical condition for uh, doing that. So, like, what what do you recommend? Just the average the average guy do? Is it a lot of like uh, leg ex- exercises, like stair climber or squats? What do, what do you recommend? I actually had a story about this just the other day. The best thing you can do for hiking is hiking. Mm. there's not an exercise that will get you prepared to hike in the mountains. Like I feel in order for you to get in mountain shape, you have to be in, in the mountains doing it right then and there. I don't Mm. feel squats, stair stepper or anything like that will actually prepare you to actually be in the elk woods on an actual elk hunt because Mm. I've even learned through the elk bros because I film and edit for hunt wars Mm-hmm. Uh, it, we're a TV show, but yep. I learned from the elk bros, dude, those guys literally sprint after elk. Like when wow. they're in the rut fest and elk are bugling and stuff, dude, they say to take off after them, like a legit That's crazy sprint to <laughs> just close the distance and try to get in there. Dude, it, it's nuts. Like elk hunting is, is so different but it's honestly one of my favorite things to do like if i had like a special hunt that i'd go on it'd be elk hunting in the rut with a bow 110 percent. man that is that is that is so crazy to think of that sprinting after an animal like that but yeah you're right i think uh you know we over we over 
analyze, you know, how to prepare for some of the stuff and some of it's just doing it. Um, so what about for flatlanders like myself here? Should we just be finding like the steepest country we can find in our area and then putting a pack on and, and, uh, throw some weight in it and, you, uh, yeah, you throw, you throw 65 pounds of weights in that backpack and you try to find the tallest elevation that you can get to and you hike that thing up and down for hours Hmm. (laughs) if you could yeah like dude there's nothing that will prepare you for hauling out an elk they're just so big yeah so big yep and and all that dead weight (laughs) you know there's just something about dead weight just so so hard to handle yeah well that's great advice um so if i'm if i'm gonna make this dream of mine happen which hopefully i am next year um i gotta i gotta take those steps to have myself in in the proper shape and then i look forward to you know whatever day i finally tag an elk i look forward to like what you said about just walking up on that thing and just saying i cannot believe how big this thing is and uh i think that that's probably a lot of the fun but also what makes you feel a little overwhelmed (laughs) oh 100 percent. and i mean dude there's nothing i mean it doesn't even have to be an elk but there's nothing better then accomplishing a goal and killing an animal and bringing it home and seeing your family enjoy it afterwards. Yeah. yeah well, like said. that, that to me is, is honestly, you know, one of my most favorite aspects about hunting is like, yeah, one, you have your memories <clears throat> you have. Well, for myself, I document it and yep. I can come back, tell those stories and whatnot. But then to actually provide for my family and make their belly full with an animal that I yeah. I pursued myself, dude, I, I love that aspect. Yeah, yeah, I love that. That is that is such a good way to say it. Very well said. Okay, so what's the dumb thing that all new elk hunters do? You know, like kind of like the where the locals shake their head at the tourist type of mentality here. So when you uh, experienced Western elk hunters see uh the greenhorn midwestern guy come hunt elk for the first time what's the dumb annoying thing that all of us do starting um you don't need to call every 10 seconds (laughs) (laughs) you just don't like you don't have to call Uh, i would say that's number one like just get calling out of your head yes there are those certain times that calling is very beneficial and works out great but you don't need to be the guy that's blowing up the canyon every 10 seconds and scaring everything out of there. And when another hunter knows that you're a hunter calling, it's that's like, oh, dude, you're not going to call in anything with that, you know? Yeah. Like if, yep. if you can tell a difference between a guy bugling and an elk bugling, yeah, that's yeah. kind of one of those things. You may, that guy may as well be saving his breath, is what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. Yep. That's, that's good insight because, you know, I think again, you know, it's the pros and cons, you know, thankfully we have YouTube and podcasts and stuff that, I mean, can you imagine how much information all of us who consume all that media, how much learning we've been able to do through the years, uh, just by like watching channels like your own, you know, like there's so many tips to be picked up there, but at the same time, like when you're producing a, a video like that, like you got to condense things, you know, obviously mm-hmm. you're not going to have every minute of 
of what went into that hunt. And I think guys that don't live around elk like myself and, um, you know, we see the, we see the last, um, you know, few minutes of the hunt. You see the glory moments. Right, exactly. And so then we just think it's going to be a certain way. And part of that is the calling too, because calling's cool, you know, like it gets people's attention. So it's going to be in those videos and then everyone buy it, you know, they're, they're, they're buying their, their mouth calls and they're bugling tubes and can't wait to get out there and use it, but they're probably hurting their chances based on what you're saying more than they're, they're helping them. So yeah. Now well, I dude, got... Oh, I was going to say just where I hunt on these open bull units. Yeah. The elk, the elk really don't call. Like, so hmm. if you are a hunter in that area calling every five seconds, you're literally going to push the animals out because they don't call themselves. So they know you're a hunter. Or if you go mm. into certain parts of Montana or Wyoming, the grizzly bears are so bad up there that if an elk calls, that's like a dinner bell to the yeah. bear. Yeah. And so they stay quiet. So these, these animals have evolved to get smarter as time goes on, you know? So yeah. like, yeah, there are times where calling is actually doing you zero good. Yeah, maybe even uh, ringing a dinner bell for your own hide with a exactly. grizzly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, that's uh, that's great. That's great advice. So, I, that plays right into what I was gonna I was gonna ask you. Um, do you feel that all that overcalling brought on by probably mostly out of staters, unfortunately, um, has that changed elk hunting and like elk behavior? Uh, you know, in places like Colorado where I've heard, you know, I haven't been out there doing it, but I've heard that if you're, you know, out in a OTC unit in September, like the place is, is an amusement park, you know, like there's people everywhere and all that calling going on. Do you, do you got, do you experience elk hunters who've been doing it your whole life? Do you guys feel like that has changed elk hunting? Uh, in a certain aspect, yes, I would say. But overall, the elk are where the elk are. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yep, like yep. you could call and be in a drainage that there's no elk anyway. You know, mm-hmm. so it, it just depends. But then you have people like the born and raised crew where, dude, they do the cat road shuffle and they're calling every five seconds. But that yeah. works for them because yep. like Oregon's so thick where they're at they almost have to call to even know where elk are because they can't glass like we can here in Utah. So I I guess there's different aspects to where you're hunting and what you can utilize more. I guess over here you can utilize your glass more so you don't need to call as often where in Oregon you can't see. So you'd have to call in order to know where elk are. So I guess it just depends on where you're at. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. I I should have thought of that with uh, you know, the visibility, you know, side of things. That that definitely makes a big difference if you're in the rainforest of Oregon or Washington or even northwest Montana, you know, that's it's so thick there that yeah, you're you're going to have to have another way than just glassing to be able to locate the elk. That's a great point. So making those make it sounds like, you know, not all that different from deer hunting in principle. Like you make the adjustments that make sense and, um, you know, think of what 
what have mature animals done that has allowed them to live to maturity? Well, they're they're mm-hmm. not doing <laughs> not doing the dumb obvious things that get them killed. So, yeah, all great advice, man. This is this has been an awesome conversation. Super helpful. I think there's so much here for myself and anyone listening in, you know, to if they're wanting to get into elk hunting or maybe they even are a veteran elk hunter, they I guarantee you they're picking up on some stuff here that's going to make it a better experience for them next time they go. Uh, we need one more story, man. You're a great storyteller. Uh, can you well, give us I was a- going to, I was going to mention your best yeah. friend in the elk woods is wind. Okay. You have to play yeah. the wind like anything else. You know what I mean? Like you yep. can still be out there in Levi's and a flannel shirt. The wind is your best friend. Yep. Like as That's long as you know. play the wind and you set up in directions, like if you know elk are coming from your West, to the east you have to plan accordingly to which way the wind's going to be blowing that day Hmm. like that is your biggest friend right there that's great to know that's and that again that's very similar to whitetails you know you can't you can't get detected by their nose i i always say that for deer i don't know if it's the same for elk but i say their senses go in this order that you have to be careful you got to be first of all you got to beat their nose then their eyes, then their ears. And I think a lot of people just focus on their ears. Like, how do I not get, you know, be heard? Well, there's so many noises that go on, you know, in nature that I don't think noise freaks animals out near as quickly as if they smell you or if they see you. And then oh, 100%. Then it's over. So that's good to know that you can translate those. If you're a bow hunter in the Midwest, you know, trying to beat a whitetail's nose. Sound like you're going to have to do the same when you're out there hunting elk out West. So great advice, man. Well, you got a good, uh, you got one more good elk story for us before we wrap this one up, man. Um, well, I guess, I don't know if it's a good story, but last year, like this is the closest I've got with a bow with, uh, with elk hunting. Cause dude, I was, like I said earlier, I was only a rifle hunter. Oh man. Yeah. So, and so this is my fifth year going into archery. The only other animal I've actually killed besides using a rifle was a coos deer with my bow uh, two years ago. Holy cow, and man. That's actually, like crazy impossible there. Dude, I, I got super lucky. Super lucky. <laughs> and don't get me wrong. It's, it was a, a smaller buck. But, dude, nobody's ever going to change my mind about that, shooting a gray ghost. And oh, it was yeah, my very man. first stock on a coos deer too which was crazy very first stock got it done but that's kind of besides the point but what i was going to say is last year my buddy brandle we were sitting a water hole oh and that's another great thing for elk hunters too if it's early season and it's super dry you have to locate that water Mm. have to locate water because they have to drink every day that's and part so, of that. That's part of that rotation you were talking about earlier, where yep. the bulls are moving to water. Uh, great tip. Yep. So we were sitting in the water hole, and he uh, had a cow come up, ends up shooting the cow, and made a high shot on her. And so we were trailing blood like forty-five minutes later, giving her some time, trailing blood, mm-hmm. and we we're walking up this little knoll, and all of a sudden, all I saw was a rat coming at me like full <laughs> full steam coming at me oh, and man. makes a hard hard left turn stops broadside like 30 35 yards i didn't even have time to range i just 
you know how you get that yep. sixth sense and it's like that's yep. like 35 yards at tops dude i had all three pins lined up in his vitals and if you could hear the thought process in my head i was just like this bull is dead i'm gonna show all my buddies you know yeah. like going through the thing and let it go and literally the only branch which i didn't even uh, see but the only branch i could have hit i hit it and uh, dude it sounded like a bullet ricochet shot off went about four inches above his back and he ran out of my life forever but uh, i could have killed a 340 open bull first bull with my bow all last oh, year and didn't man. happen but I'm getting redemption this year. That's actually the game plan for opening day. Instead of going to hunt my deer unit, I'm going to go hunt elk because I, I just, it. I want to get it so, so bad. I want to get it done with a bow on a bull. Hey, and so I'm, that's, I'm, that's a game plan. I'm right there with you, brother. I'm, I'm, uh, I've been, well, I think this will be my fifth year of bow hunting and I've gotten so close with getting it done with my bow, but, but, uh, I mean, mo multiple times very close, but I just have not been able to seal the deal yet. And uh, you know what, though? I think that that reality for guys like us, that, that makes us so much better at finding the animals. You know what I mean? Because, because oh, yeah. we, have to, we have to put so much effort into uh, our other skills to try and compensate for, you know, our inexperience with with the archery tackle but you're gonna get it man i believe in you you're gonna do it this year and uh, you can't have bad luck like that twice you know lightning doesn't strike twice you're, you're gonna <laughs> you're gonna get in there there's not gonna be any branches in the way and you're gonna get that clean shot man so well well i appreciate uh, it and i hope the same for you man i hey i i hope so but you know what we can still enjoy our boomsticks in the meantime too you know there's nothing wrong oh, with for doing sure. some rifle and muzzleloader <laughs> hunting stuff like that so but uh, before we wrap this one up, Weston, uh, how can people follow you and find you and uh, track down your content? So I'm very active on YouTube and Instagram. It's just tag Rise and Shed. And uh, my website is riseandshed.com. And yeah. Yeah. And you got merch and stuff too, right? People are yep. following along. Awesome. Yep. Got uh, merch. And then I have a, a monthly t-shirt subscription where if you sign up for it, it's only 28 bucks a month. And all those designs in the t-shirt subscription are just exclusive just to the subscription. So awesome. you won't see them on my website. So awesome. Yeah, little perk. Yeah, definitely. So uh, if you're tuning in, you need, need some, uh, some new uh, shirts, some new threads going to work, going to hang out with your hunting buddies, or maybe you're just going to go hang stands or do a little scouting. You know, you gotta do it in style. Get on there and uh, get signed <laughs> up with that uh, subscription that Weston's got on his website. So, thanks so much, man, for jumping on this one with me. And a big thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you have not yet, please leave a five star review. That helps get this podcast featured on uh, iTunes or as it's really called Apple podcast now, but we all know it as iTunes. We're all millennials here. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, then uh, also on Spotify, same deal. Go on there, leave that five-star review. That is a huge, huge, uh, you know, nice, nice little nod to the show. When you do that, uh, do remember the show is presented by Spartan forge. 
I'm going to have Bill on here soon, whether he knows it or not. I need, I keep meaning to text him today and uh, say, hey, Bill, we need to do another podcast. Uh, so we'll find out what's going on with Spartan Forge as far as new stuff coming out here soon. Um, I really do love everything that Spartan Forge does with its mapping. Uh, the mapping side of it is free, so you can just download the app, and there, boom, you got your, your mapping for uh, all the – I think you get all the layers. You might not get all the layers for the free version. I don't know because I'd get the paid version, people. So get the paid version. Then you get everything. But um, I get the landowner data. You can you know drop waypoints and so forth and, and map things out as far as what you're seeing while you're scouting. Um, you can, uh, though, if you – do subscribe, do the monthly payments. Uh, you can just subscribe during deer season if you would like or shed season, but I would strongly recommend you just do the whole year thing because if you're like me, you're on it all the time. You're planning out how your fall is going to look. And, uh, that's where, that's where you get all the benefits. Plus you get the deer behavior prediction, which is really kind of the, uh, the bread and butter of what Spartan Forge does. It's just a phenomenal service there. So go to my, show notes find the link for spartan forge or if you go to my link tree in my bio on instagram you will also find a link for the website there for spartan forge get on board with them you will be so glad that you did and then don't forget alex gruen as well he is another sponsor of the show has been for a very long time alex will plan your elk hunt for you if you are a client of his so go over to eastwesthunts.com and uh, you can rent gear from Alex. You can get signed up for his app service where he'll, um, you know, send in for, uh, uh, apl- well, apply for tags or send in for bonus points if uh, it's a it's a place or unit where uh, they'll, they do bonus points. He'll take care of that. Or you can do all the, the tag apps and everything and point buying yourself. But maybe you just want him to plan your hunts when you do draw those tags. He'll do that as well. And that is really a top-to-bottom, first-class service that Alex offers. I've benefited from it. There's no way uh, we would have gotten a bear if uh, we didn't have Alex planning that hunt for us. And so uh, definitely check out Alex. Tell him I sent you. Use the promo code FIRSTGEN10, and uh, you'll save 10% off of uh, whatever service you book with him. So, again, East to West Hunts, promo code or eastwesthunts.com, promo code FIRSTGEN10, and you'll save that uh, 10%. And uh, last but not least, our newest sponsor, Old Barn Taxidermy, world-class taxidermy. They are based here in Iowa, but they do work all over the place, and they do a lot of it. They do over 500 uh, deer a year, plus they do a bunch of turkeys, plus they do mountain lions, bears, uh waterfowl fish they do all sorts of stuff okay uh sam is just a world-class taxidermist one of the the most well-known taxidermists in the business been doing it for a very long time uh you can find a link to their website in um these show notes as well and uh, if you do go to old barn make sure you tell them that i sent you there they want to know if uh if um you know or who is sending them their way so make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the first gen hunter podcast that helps me out and uh definitely gets you the best taxidermy you can get don't settle for bad taxidermy right weston bad taxidermy is like a one of your biggest regrets in life would you agree with that oh i agree (laughs) <laughs> yeah, when you once you see it, you can't unsee it. When you're looking at when you're looking at your bad taxidermy that you went with some cut rate guy, 
man, you'll just be you'll you'll just be shaking your head, and your wife won't let you hang it on the wall. So definitely get it done right. Go see Sam at Old Barn Taxidermy. He'll take care of you. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into this one, and uh, until next time, take care and take someone hunting.